to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, everybody. I am Lee Johnson, and I'm sitting here with my fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson. As usual, we are going to kick things off by asking our bartender, Rami, to grab us some drinks and share what we're ranting and raving about this week. So, Rick, let me start with you. What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? Rami, it's one of those days, and I'm going to go back to uh, Manhattan. I'd like mine with rye. You choose the rye that you think I need right now. I'm having a rye Manhattan, the original recipe. Not the powdered form. <laughs> Rami. <laughs> not, not that shit that you get at Costco, but the original recipe. That's right. <laughs> not the generic recipe. This week, I am raving about the lyricist Marilyn Bergman. <laughs> Within this rave, there is an embedded rave. I caught an episode of Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and I love when Terry pulls out these lyricists or studio musicians who are really important in the industry, but I've never heard of, and Marilyn Bergman is one of them. She wrote the lyrics for Nice and Easy, which she and her husband, Alan Bergman, wrote for Sinatra, who was the first to record it. She just did amazing work. She passed away recently, and so I wanted to rave about her life and her work. I'm ranting, I, and I'm sure we've ranted about this <laughs> douchebag before. <laughs> I'm ranting about Senator Rand Paul. The man is actually making life dangerous for Dr. Anthony Fauci and his family, and the dude just needs to stop. This is getting really serious, and he needs to back off and stop with knocking Fauci, calling him a liar, calling him a traitor, because it's dangerous. And putting a button right beside it that says donate to Rand Paul right. here. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. God bless Fauci for calling him out on that. Yeah. All right, Charles, what are you ranting and raving about? And also, what are you drinking? I'm going to keep it simple, and I'm just going to go with three fingers of Uncle Nearest. <laughs> I'm sensing a trend here. There's a trend here. <laughs> well, it's the winter. We just had incredibly cold and very strong winter storms here in my part of the woods. And I need something that's just going to either keep me warm or make me forget about the terrible weather. And if you can get a twofer out of that, that's the best way to go. So, <laughs> so I'm going to go with the three fingers of Uncle Nearest. Neat. Thank you, Rami. We're in the midst or we're beginning Black History Month. And I love this. I think it's a fantastic celebration. But my rant are the hypocrites that indulge it. So, for example, I'm looking at the ways in which members of the GOP during King Day had all these tweets and these public comments about honoring King's memory or honoring King's legend. And at the same time, like if you're Governor Abbott of Texas, you are signing legislation that would prohibit teaching anything about King in the classrooms. Or if you're Governor Youngkin of Virginia, your first executive decisions, one of them was a bill saying that you cannot teach anything that is considered to be critical race theory or basically anything that makes white people feel comfortable about the terrible history of white supremacy. So that just really infuriates me because it's like these people have this contest that we don't know about. It's called, hey, I'm the hypocritical asshole of the day. 
and then all these guys are running really hard to win this award that's my rant to amazing levels of unself-awareness the lack of a critical consciousness the lack of any type of moral fiber and to be honest the ignorance of the people that support them despite all of these terrible and profound moral and ethical failures my rave is popular culture is effective on political consciousness <laughs> If you're a kid of the 80s like I am, we can talk about Do They Know It's Christmas, the great British pop song that raised awareness to the Ethiopian famine. Or we can talk about I'm Not Gonna Play Sun City, which helped raise awareness around apartheid in South Africa. Little Steven Van Sant produced and wrote that song. But I think what's lost in the mix is the fact that Stevie Wonder's Happy Birthday to You, his song written for Martin Luther King Jr., really had a huge effect on shaping and altering popular consciousness in the United States toward making the King holiday a federal holiday. Nice, nice. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? Well, I think I'm going to switch things up today and I'm going to have the second to least expensive Shiraz that Rami has. <laughs> I am not normally a wine drinker, but I have been getting into Shiraz recently. But since I'm not a wine drinker, I don't want to pay a lot of money for it. So yeah. So this week I am ranting about moral judgment that comes from our technologies. Specifically, I'm talking about these ways that notifications are built into the algorithms of our streaming services and also some of our apps that have this kind of implicit shaming function. Like, you know, when Netflix says, are you still there? Are you still watching? Mm. Or recently on TikTok, I've noticed, and this tells you how much I'm on TikTok, there's built in after a certain amount of time that you'll get a TikTok that says, hey, you've been on a TikTok for a while. How about we do a mindfulness exercise? And, you know, I suppose wow. like I should not be ranting about these things because I'm sure they're meant for my own health and well-being, but they're annoying. And sometimes, you know, you just want to stream stuff and you just don't want to have to stop and reflect on your own activities. You just don't want to do that. You don't that, want your technology so. judging you? <laughs> do not. Do not. I am raving this week, though, about what I'm going to call pandemic trends. <laughs> So I feel like there have been a lot of phases in this pandemic and there have been kind of trends associated with each of them. You know, we started out, it was like puzzles and then it was Tiger King and then it was sourdough bread. And there there just been a lot of these. And now it's Wordle. Right. By the way, I don't have thoughts one way or the other about Wordle. It seems like a perfectly fine game. But I do like that because we're all still locked up and trying to adjust to the new normal, that we have these pandemic trends that emerge every few months and kind of join us all together, either in loving or hating whatever the trend is. It's a nice, weird sense of community, and I'm all about that now. All right. So, Charles, I think you were in the hot seat this week. What are we talking about? I thought I was sharing the hot seat with Rick. We're in the hot love seat. You don't see me sitting on Charles' lap? <laughs> All right. So we got a double hot seat today. That's right. That's right. Guys, what are we talking about? We are talking about what I think would be the closest thing to the American Shakespearean drama. Specifically, I mean the Godfather trilogy.
to be honest, emotionally, I really got to mean parts one and two. <laughs> but because it is seen as a three-part epic tale, I'll allow the inclusion of Godfather 3. It's Shakespearean for me because of A, like Shakespeare, the characterizations, the amazing complex levels of human expression, emotion, and psychological deportment. The language, the quotes are really as ubiquitous as anything that we would pull from the Shakespearean canon. I mean, if you were to say to somebody, a rose is still a rose, whatever the smell, and I'm, I'm misquoting that, the equivalent to that could be, it's not personal, Sonny, it's business, right? And we have all of these mm -hmm. various quotes. I think that makes it part of it. And I think also why, to me, it's Shakespearean because it nails some of the major themes, issues, and concerns within a specific cultural milieu, post-World War II U.S. culture. But at the same time, it's still able to tap into some fundamentally, almost universally human concerns, entanglements. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And much like Shakespearean tragedy in particular, specifically the character of Michael Corleone is a character who comes to tragic consequences based on his decision to avoid tragic consequences. And, mm -hmm. and how that plays itself out over the trilogy, I think, is incredibly Shakespearean. I also think there are a number of larger political issues that the trilogy deals with, the use of power and violence, the question of legitimacy. So I think there are larger social issues also, which is not to say Shakespeare didn't deal with those as well, but I think it's an incredibly emblematic film. I think one and two are, as films, remarkably well-made and well-crafted. I wish I could say the same about three, but I think it's necessary <laughs> for the story. So today's topic is The Godfather, part one, part two, and I'm sorry, also a little bit of part three. <laughs> My father taught me many things here. He taught me in this room. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Going back to Rick's note, if we're going to go with the Shakespearean framework that this is, a tragedy, and it is a tragedy specifically of the central character of Michael Corleone. And I think about Faulkner's great line from his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, where he says, the only story worth being told is the story of the human heart in conflict with itself. And I think about that line as we examine Michael Corleone and the arc of his characterization and the choices that he makes. And I wanted to sort of throw that to Rick, right? Because I know Rick is really very interested in that particular character. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that makes the first Godfather movie so remarkable is that entire opening scene surrounding the party that starts in Vito Corleone's study just the filming of that and all of the background you get about the entire family and the context and the period in history. But there already, you see Michael pointing out the violence that characterizes his family's, in quotes, his family's enterprise. And he says to his girlfriend, Kay, that's my family, Kay, that's not me. And so, he already sets up that he's distancing himself from this use of violence that the family, again, in quotes, the, the mafia family depends on. 
And yet the next important moment in this is he says within five years, the family is going to become legitimate. And he then repeats the, this use of violence. He repeats in order to bring the family to legitimacy. And that sets the path for the tragedy that all three films will then follow. If we're going to stick with the Shakespearean theme and we accept Michael as a tragic character, because for anyone who's seen the movie, yes, he is a tragic character based upon what happens with his outsiderness, his disposition, his aims, his goals, right? Who he is at his sister Connie's wedding. What would you say is his fatal flaw? Yeah, can I jump in here for a second and just maybe propose an alternative reading of this tragedy? I do think that this is a tragedy. I don't think this is a tragedy about Michael Corleone. I think that the main character is America. Hmm. And I'll just remind you both, and anyone who's ever seen The Godfathers knows this, is that the very first lines in the very first film is, I believe in America. And who speaks those lines? Well, if we want to be sort of hopeful, we could say it's the line spoken by an immigrant. But I would say it's a line spoken by an undertaker. <laughs> that right. is the person who believes in America. And I think a lot of the story that, you know, I could be wrong, that I anticipate that you are going to tell about the tragedy of Michael Corleone is much better explained in talking about the massive changes to America and to the way that America understands political legitimacy, understands the relationship between the law and business and family and the truly devastating effects that those changes have had on individual lives from the buttons to the dons. I, I think that's a really important point, Lee, and I'm happy you brought it up. So maybe the way I would alter it is that in the drama, it is the tragedy of Michael Corleone who stands in as mm. a, a sort of symbol or characterization of the tragedy that befalls America, right? So you can't have America as a character in a drama. And so Michael Corleone, I <laughs> right. think, is in many ways that character. I think that's a really, really insightful point that Lee makes. But it, it seems to me that the slight difference would be, in, and maybe this is just my own perspective, we can say that he represents America, but I don't accept America as starting out as an innocent, hmm. starting out as unblemished, because certainly the way in which Michael is presented to us at the beginning of the first film, he is, relatively speaking, unblemished, right? He doesn't have any of the background. He's accepted by the entire family as this isn't what he does. You know, they're all, quote unquote, criminals, but he's there in his military uniform. He's a war hero from World War II. So there's a question of what is the foundational status or position of Michael Corleone as character and Michael Corleone as representative of American history and society. But Charles, don't you think that already in the first film, although he's in uniform, right? So he's just back from World War II, where he's a decorated war hero. And he himself says, that's my family. That's not me. Okay. Here's why I think Godfather 3 is an important moment. So there's a line in there, crime and politics, they're the same thing. And I think that Michael mm -hmm. was destined to be a senator or a governor or maybe even president, his father tells him. And crime and politics are the same thing. So he's presented as innocent. But as the drama unfolds, I think it's clear that he's never as innocent as he himself presents himself. I'm not sure I want to say that the corruptions that we see unfolding from Michael are inherent 
But I think it's a, based upon a series of decisions that he makes, a series of pressure points that he finds himself at. And it, it really is a question of ultimately what are his fundamental allegiances? Is he loyal to this idea of America, right? Because this is an immigrant story, without a doubt. I believe in America. I came to America. Everybody has that story within the context of Italian-American life, early 20th century. So to this idea of who this population, this historic community says it wants to be and sees as possible in the new world, or is it to his family? Is he invested in nation and national ideals, or is he invested in this more simple or primitive form of the family, of the tribe, of the community? So I'm not sure it's inherent. I'm, I'm saying that he has to make choices, and it could have been a choice to maintain some type of sense of American purity, idealism, to enter into the mainstream and become this formal figure of respectable authority. But I think there the question then presses itself most acutely. Could he have become a figure of legitimate authority without having recourse to the violence and to his family and all that his family stands for? And I think he never would have been a figure of legitimate authority. That's why I think the discussion that goes on through the trilogy about the relationship between legitimacy and violence is a really interesting one and maybe the crux upon which the entire tragedy turns, even if, as Lee says, and I agree wholeheartedly, it's the tragedy of America, because I think that's also a central part of the tragedy that is America, namely the lack of understanding of the relationship between so-called legitimacy and violence. And also the lack of understanding of the relationship between the so-called old world and the new world. And this is where I think I agree with Rick that I don't think that we ever get Michael as an innocent. Michael is already deeply entangled in this family, in this culture, in this business. And even though when we first meet him, he's a decorated war veteran, but we know that he only is because earlier, and I don't think that we find this out until later in the first film or maybe even in the second film, he joined the army just to sort of thumb his nose at his family. So I'm not sure that I agree that his story as it unfolds is a story of autonomous decision making, of building himself in a certain way. I think that he's always finding that he can't make the choices that he wants to make and that in many ways, all of his choices are so entangled in family, in culture, in history, and in later business that the kind of agency that we would want to ascribe to a simple understanding of a hero or a villain is just never his. I still think I disagree. The key points where he makes the conscious decision and commits to and willingly commits to or remaining a part of this communal organization versus investing in the ideals of the nation state is after his father is shot. He goes to the hospital and he says to his father, who's hooked up to the tubes and is on life support, says, look, I'm with you now. I'm here. Now, all these decisions I had been making going off to college, I think if I'm not mistaken from the novel, he was a student at Dartmouth. He drops out of school. He joins the Marines after Pearl Harbor, becomes a war hero, and is completely distant. Had already made the decision to create and move beyond fears of his family's influence. But when his father's life is in danger, and he sees his father's life as endangering the family structure, he still has affection, love, and an actual investment in and, and intentional working to maintain this structure. That's when he signs on to the larger project. 
I think you're right, Charles, but I don't know that I want to go as far as you do. Because on the one hand, if he had stayed on the path and become a senator or a governor or even president, the assumption is he would be working still for the family in politics, right? It's not as if the family doesn't have senators and governors and judges and so on. And the assumption is he would have been one of them. You can't imagine that he would, you know, become a prosecutor and start prosecuting organized crime or something like that. And so the distance from his family is in a way also in order to serve the family. But I think the point you raise is a really interesting one, namely that if America is the main character of this tragedy, then Michael is either caught or doesn't understand the relationship between family and society or between the family unit and how that functions in relation to a social whole. I think in many ways that tension calls into question the Hegelian notion that civil society is sort of the next development from out of the family. The way the trilogy puts those two intentions, society and family, really does call into question whether Hegel was right about that. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. Lee made a really important point that I think we let drop, namely that if a drama is about some kind of tension, one of the tensions involved in The Godfather is the tension between the old world and the new world. And I think we've been circling around the fact that especially Godfather 1, although it comes up again in 2. This is a story about immigrants, and particularly immigrants from Italy, particularly southern Italy. And so I wonder, Charles, what is your thinking about the role that the, the immigrants from the old world to the new world play in this drama that is the Godfather trilogy? Probably from the late 70s, when they first started showing this movie on television up until the, the late 80s, early 90s, I had probably seen Godfather 1 at least 20 times, right? It's hypnotic. <laughs> and Godfather 2, maybe half that. But it wasn't until, you know, I went to grad school, and this is the early 90s, and you, there are all these works looking at whiteness as a social structure, thinking about the ways in which whiteness is a set of, of policies and behaviors and a consciousness that I really began to realize, like, oh, shit, the Godfather's up to that point is probably one of the most sustained and engaged and insightful meditations on whiteness in mainstream American cinema. Because what we see is coming from this Sicilian background and 
inherent to Italy. There are these quasi-racial ethnic geographical tensions between the North and the South, the historical relationship of Sicily to North African societies. So you already have that there. But then what you see is the quest on the part of the Corleone family with Vito, right, the Don at the beginning, this movement, not just away from a primitive or a peasant sort of background into this industrialized uh, society, but also the ways in which part of that movement becomes racialized because what we see are these Italian immigrants who are ostracized because of their Catholicism, because of their poverty, because they're not coming out of an Anglo tradition. They start participating in this thing called whiteness and they start moving into the society in ways by which they can start to access, I believe, white privilege. Part of white is not just a gaining of certain types of social or political privileges, starting through criminal underground, trying to move into the mainstream as Michael is doing. But we can also see it in the ways in which this community of Italian immigrants, their perception of black people, what they think of black people, whether it be in the, the boardroom as they decide the future of heroin distribution in the country. You've got the old Don who says, keep it in the colored communities. They're animals anyway. Let them lose their souls. And then we see in Godfather 2 with Frank Pantangelia talks about how he hates the Rosado brothers because they recruit insulting words for Latinx identities, the N-word for black people. And so racism, the embrace of a white supremacist racist view toward other migrant communities is a big part of the ways in which we see this Italian-American family moving toward mainstream privilege by gaining white privilege as well, by showing a negation or antagonism toward other non-white populations. I want to maybe disagree because I think that racism is a central part of the way this story is told. But I'm not sure that I see white privilege reflected in the Corleone family in the same way that you do. Because I was thinking about this before we recorded, and I knew that you were interested in talking about the way that race plays out in this story, which I think is really complicated and is really fascinating. But it occurred to me when rewatching the films that there are really hardly any white people in the trilogy, even. Certainly in the first two films, there's really only two important white people, main characters that are white people, and those are the senator and Kay. In every other way, the interactions with white people are with the police who are always calling the mafia family racist slurs for Italians, same way with the senator. I mean, Kay's the only white person who doesn't reinforce their identity as on the margins of whiteness, definitely not accepted as white. And later in the second and then the third film, we see more interactions with the Carleone family and Jewish people, but again, as outcasts, as on the margins of whiteness. So I do think that whiteness plays a role in the film, but only as the actual legitimate power that everyone is trying to get that no one ever really gets. Not to get in between the two of you, but I think my reading is maybe somewhere in the middle. I want to focus particularly now in Godfather 2 and that opening scene where there's a party now in Lake Tahoe that mirrors the wedding scene from Godfather 1. And Lee, you point out, I think, one of the most important characters from Godfather 2, and that's Senator Geary, who I just look at him and I think you're a Mormon. I don't know why, but I, I just... <laughs> <laughs> He does but give I mean, off some strong that, that might just vibes. be code for like really, really white. I mean, that dude makes me look like a person of color. <laughs> well, I right. mean, he's a senator from Nevada. I mean, it's Utah adjacent. 
<laughs> right. So he's there and he's the one using slurs against Michael Corleone. And he says, I'm sick of you people coming here with your greasy hair and you think you put on silk suits and, you know, everything's fine. And I don't like your kind here. So you see that insistence that the Corleone family and Italians are on the margins of whiteness. But on the other hand, you have the other important character, Frank Pentangeli, who in that very scene says what Charles was referring to earlier. The problem with the Rosati brothers is that they hire, again, a slur for Latinx people and uses the N-word. But I think what I heard in Charles' point is that Frankie represents the old family, represents the tradition, and Michael is on his way toward white privilege and therefore needs to leave Frankie behind. And one of the ways that Michael can then move toward privilege, well, here then is where I disagree with Charles because I think Michael is not so easy with these racial characterizations, but he does seem to be moving toward white privilege. No, I agree. And I think and this is, goes back to the question of the immigrants' arc within the films. The first film is squarely set within the retention of old world forms within the new world, right? Whether it be the opening scene where we have Don Corleone who cannot refuse a request on his daughter's wedding day. It's a Sicilian tradition. The levels of respect and regard that he's given, the authority that he has within that Italian-American community versus the opening scene the Nevada in 1958. It's no longer within these adjacent areas to the original landing places of immigrants coming into the United States. There's like this huge band and there are all these, for, as far as we can tell, non-Italians. Right. It is no longer the ethnic bonanza that we see in the opening scenes of the first movie. Now, what really shows us that there's an aspiration toward whiteness is the fact that we see the senator's resistance to that. The way to establish whiteness is to be racist in the first film to be racist toward other populations. In the second film, one understands one's movement away from one's ethnic position because now one isn't coming into conflict with this ur-whiteness as represented by the senator. And I think the fact that the senator goes off, right, shows you that there's a motion away from this traditional ethnic racialization and they're trying to get to. So I'm not saying they've embraced white identity. I'm not saying they have white privilege. I'm saying they're seeking it. They're aspiring toward it. And their aspiration is really reflective of the ways in which traditional European immigrant populations have moved toward whiteness within the United States. I don't discount the ethnophobia or the relative racism that these various populations have been subject to. Not at all. But I'm saying that's a part of this process to get to where at a certain point, you know, our whiteness becomes much more important than our Italian Americanness. Yeah, I completely agree that the aspiration towards whiteness is ever present in the films. I I think that, and this kind of gets back to Rick's questions about the role and the definition of mm. legitimate power in the films, but I think that one of the things that we see is that a common thread throughout all three films is that the Corleone family cannot become legitimate. Even the their very best chance at it, right? The war hero son who was supposed to go to college, he effed it up by deciding to go and enlist in the army or whatever. And then he effed that up by coming back and joining the family and running the family. 
And then he effed that up by creating all of these mafia wars, etc. All he's trying to do is be legitimate, which was really Vito Corleone's dream, is that the family become legitimate. All along, they aspire, exactly as Charles said, towards that white sense of legitimacy by buying white people, buying senators, buying policemen, and being white adjacent. But the the end of the story is that that door remains closed to them, period. What's interestingly about your using that phrase, the door remains closed, is that there is a scene at the end of Godfather 1 that's mirrored in Godfather 3, where when Michael becomes the Don, they close the door. And who do they close the door on? Kay. It's also married in Godfather 2 when Michael closes the door on Kay, who's come to visit her children. And, okay, so since you guys have opened the door for me, let's talk about women (laughs) and these films. Hey, Hotel Bar Sessions listener. We really enjoy doing this podcast, and really we would do it for nothing, and in fact we do. But it's not without its own costs. Those bits are not free, and they reside somewhere. And so we're asking for your help. We have a Patreon page. You can go to www.patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions, and there you will find a number of levels at which you could subscribe. For example, we have the Barfly menu, $4 a month. That's hardly a yingling for Lee. And that includes early access to all new episodes, and we'll even shout out your name once in a while. We have the Shots level at $8 a month. That includes that, plus a fan request, a monthly Ask Me Anything, and access to exclusive content that we're going to offer on Patreon. Then the designated driver level, that's $12 a month. That includes all of that, plus some swag, our hotel bar sessions coffee mug. The dude level, $20 a month, all of that. Plus, you could have a guest spot on one of our afterthoughts or even on the podcast. And finally, we have the Medici level, that's $50 a month. And that includes all of that. Plus, anything you can think of, as long as it's legal and within the bounds of morality. Remember, our morals are a little loose. So once again, go to our Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. Or you can find all this information on our news and notes sections on our website at hotelbarpodcast.com. We really appreciate your support. If you like what you're hearing then please think about helping us keep it going. It's been a while, I think, since I sat down and spent nine hours watching this trilogy, but I did it over the last few days, and I was really shocked that I had a completely different response to the films. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that the women are portrayed in the Godfather films. You know, there's this really famous conversation between Vito Corleone and Michael Corleone where Vito says, I've spent my whole life trying not to be careless. Women and children can be careless, but men can't be careless. Despite the fact that in all three movies, we see careless men doing careless things all the time and making everyone else's lives miserable. 
But there is a sense in which the women are just not a part of the story. They are prop pieces. And all of us know that no family survives without the women. I mean, we see them at the weddings. We see them making the food. We see them singing the songs. We see the love that the boys have for their mothers and their wives. Well, some of the boys have for their wives. But the women are not full characters. Now, Rick brought up a point in the earlier segment that I think is really important, which is that this is not a subtle point in The Godfather. The Godfather 1 and The Godfather 2 both literally end with men closing the door on women to keep the business of their lives secret from the women in their lives. And I'm just wondering, how do you deal with this? Because uh, let's admit it, there's a sort of bro-y culture about The Godfather, and people's love for The Godfather oozes with bro-ishness. Oh, it's deeply problematic. And now one can try and argue that this is a, a representation of the culture of the mafia and the heightened toxic masculinity and the marginalization of women. I'm not even sure that that would suffice for a legitimate explanation, but this rewatching, certainly of Godfather 2, really underscored for me the deep violence toward women, whether it be Michael striking Kay after she admits that she'd had an abortion, or you've got, and this is something that sadly gets really overlooked in many ways, the murder of the sex worker in order to set right. up Senator mm-hmm. Geary to make him more controllable by the Colleone family. And the, the brutal domestic abuse of yeah. Connie. Right. Under the guise of making Carlo out to be a bad guy to legitimate his murder later on. But there's a really very deep misogyny, certainly within the, the cynical folds of, of Godfather 2, that is not balanced at all by this attempt to construct this ideal Italian mother in Don Colleone's wife and the mother of the three sons and the daughter. What's interesting in Godfather 3 is when Michael confesses for the first time in 30 years, which, by the way, in the time frame of the movies, takes us back to the time frame of Godfather 1. So he hasn't confessed his sins since Godfather 1. One of the things he says, he confesses to killing his brother Fredo. But the way he does it is he says, I killed my mother's son. And then after a pause, he Mm -hmm. says, I killed my father's son. Almost as if those were two different people. But I, I think in a way, like saying, I killed my mother's son, shows the way in which this trilogy, I think, tarries incredibly uncomfortably with the old fashioned Madonna horror complex. Mm-hmm. The women are either the mothers who are, as mothers, saintly and are to be respected and, and so on, or they're just to be used and disposed of in order to achieve some other end. By the way, I think, Lee, if this is a tragedy of America, then I'm not saying the film does this on purpose, but it stages another aspect of the tragedy of America. Perfect example is Connie. Connie goes from the innocent bride, then she goes to the whore after the divorce, and we got Merle, and then after the mother dies, now she becomes the maternal figure. Conciliary. She really is conciliary. And and the maternal figure of the family, and then by the third, she is now this force who's completely layered into the older traditions of the family in terms of use of violence and force and criminality. Yeah, although I don't think that she rises to the level of a consigliere because I think that she's still portrayed as the manipulative, Mm, scheming, snaky temptress and not as a legitimate, recognizable power. But let me ask you guys both this 
question more directly. If I said to you that I have the same amount of love for a film or a film trilogy that was as racist as this is sexist, I think that you would have some problem with me saying that. And I'm wondering how you reckon with your love for this film and your admiration and revering of this film trilogy, given how sexist it is. I would say this, and I think this is an example I always use. I would ask, well, what qualities about it do you love? If you're like, oh, clearly the ideological content is why I love this racist film, right? Then we have some problems. But if you're saying, well, the technical aspects of it, the innovations of it, and I say this because I think about though the ideological content is so odious, but Birth of a Nation. I find that an amazing film in terms of its technical innovation. So if you were to say, oh, yeah, I like this film for this reason, but are still able to say, but I understand the racism is appalling. I'm the sort of person that can say, yeah, I find that appalling, but there are other elements about it that I still appreciate and recognize as really important and interesting to me. But I don't think that you would say to your friends at the hotel bar, you know, probably since the 70s, I've watched Birth of a Nation a hundred times. Let me tell you all the things I love about it. And then wait till one of your friends points out that it's racist to be like, oh, yeah, it's also racist, too. Like, I'm not trying to point a finger at either of you. I also love The Godfathers, but I think this was the first time that I watched them through that I was like, this is really problematic how much I love these films. Well, and right? so I've been quiet since you've asked the question, because often when I'm teaching and a student asks a question that is really worthy of thought, then I don't speak for a long time. And I, I don't know that I have a good answer. And I'm not comfortable with the answer Charles gave, because... I'm someone who is a little bit suspicious of the ways in which aesthetics are always in the service of politics and ideology. And to say that I appreciate this for its aesthetic aspects, but I separate out the, let's say in this case, Lee, you're pointing out the sexism and the patriarchal nature of it. So I'm not so comfortable separating those out. I think that it is now troubling to me that I would unqualifiedly say Godfather is one of the greatest films ever made. Without, as you put it, and I think very poignantly, we'd get deep into that conversation before I would say, oh yeah, and it also is incredibly sexist. So I think that in, in a way, mm. the only direction I would take is to see whether or not in being so overtly patriarchal and in having women treated so violently and yet strangely carelessly at the same time, that brings to the fore one of the fundamental points of axis around which the American tragedy turns. That might not be sufficient to save it. And if it's not, I, I think I would be willing to give it up. But I'll admit to you, Lee, it would make me sad not to really love this film anymore. So I'm, I'm really troubled. Charles mentioned that the Godfather trilogy recalls Shakespearean dramas for him. And you mentioned that it recalls, I'm assuming, ancient tragedies for you. I would kind of go forward in time. Uh, I think The Godfather reminds me a lot of The Wire, the HBO series, The Wire. And I will say that this is one important difference between The Godfather and The Wire, is right. that The Wire also is representing a world that is horrible for women to be in, in which women are treated as props, in which they are the victims of tremendous amount of violence, and in which they are not allowed to 
develop the kind of agency and power that the men in the story are. Nevertheless, they have a role and those roles that they play are complex and that have agency are a part of explaining how this world is how it is. And I think that in some ways, it is very much of the time of the 70s for Coppola to tell this or for Puzo to tell the story in this way where the women are just quite literally props in the story and not in the way that we now see very similar stories that have the same kinds of endemic problems that the actual United States has are able to tell the stories of women in much better ways. Yeah, I I think that's a good point. And I think there are three women who are not mere props, except they probably do become mere props in being so stereotypically portrayed. And that's Kay, Connie, and Michael's mother. Yeah, I think that they're entirely props. I mean, I agree with what you just said, that they are props in as much as they are very flat stereotypes. Yeah, they're flat and they're extreme. They're sort of like plot devices. So yeah, I agree with you there, even though there are moments in, particularly in Godfather 2, where Michael's love of his mother, Fredo's love of his mother, should be one of the central plot points. That sort of empties itself out and becomes a little bit too flat. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I agree with you, Lee. Uh, just one last thing about the gender, too, is that Fredo is so feminized in the story that I think he serves right. as another woman in the story. That he's shown as, in the words of Vito Corleone, as careless, as weak, and he suffers a very similar story arc that the women in the story do. You make some great points. And you know now I have to sort of begin to rethink how we talk about the film as well. But I wonder if... Also, are there moments where they'll valorize their examples of the dangers and problematics of toxic masculinity as well as sort of an exaggerated sense of manhood and how problematic and dangerous that can be in terms of the business life and as well the personal lives of these families? Because certainly, obviously, I think Santino is a perfect example of that. It's what gets him killed. It's what gets him killed. And I would also say Michael's arc, his ethical decline, and the effect it's having upon his family because he's trying to be this certain type of man is also sort of examined. But also in terms of how he's conducting this war after the Don is killed and the argument between he and Tom Hagen. Hagen's like, look, basically you're trying to macho this thing out. And you're developing this great reputation for a warrior, but you're not attending to the other aspects of what makes this family able to survive, which is the business and compromise and negotiation. So I think that's an interesting example of there how this Achilles, right? Achilles can't run the kingdom. But but out of nine hours of film to have like these 10 minutes, I think is not worth it. Yeah. And I don't think that the other characters in the film, even if they judge the character of people who mistreat women as wanting, they don't recognize that as what we would call toxic masculinity. They recognize that as maybe masculinity going a little bit too far. Yeah. Although Vito keeps saying, and other characters like Michael's mother, you need to spend more time with your family. A man who doesn't spend time with his family is no man, and so on. But Lee, I would agree that that is not then making women 
full agents in this story. No, no. In fact, is a way of evacuating them. So then they serve a role, what? To make men more manly. Right. Hey, listeners, just a quick heads up to let you know that we're almost at the end of season three of Hotel Bar Sessions. Each of our seasons is 15 episodes long, and so the episode that you're listening to right now is the penultimate episode of season three. As usual, we'll take a short break between seasons to regroup, refresh our drinks, and interview our new bartender. But in the meantime, please do take this opportunity to catch up on our past episodes of Hotel Bar Sessions, rate us five stars on your preferred podcast streaming service, subscribe to our Hotel Bar Sessions YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcasts, and subscribe to our Patreon account at patreon.com backslash Hotel Bar Sessions. If you've got suggestions for Season 4 episodes, or if you'd like to pull up a seat next to us as a guest on one of our Season 4 episodes, please just email us at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. Now, back to our episode. So, floating around the background of this entire discussion, I feel, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel is the way in which this trilogy deals with, in general, and I'll just leave it vague for now and then I'll fill it in, the question of legitimacy. So, I mentioned at the start of our discussion that he promises K, although it doesn't sound like a promise at the time, within five years, the family will be completely legitimate. Godfather 2 is all about the ways in which he attempts to make the family legitimate. And Godfather 3 is when he comes to recognize that the so-called legitimate world is just as corrupt as the world he's trying to leave behind. You are so loved, Don Tomasino. Why was I so feared and you so loved? What was it? I was no less horrible. I wanted to cut. What betrayed me? My mind? My heart? Why do I condemn myself so? And so it seems like this question of legitimacy is one that is central to the film. And I think, and I'll just lay this out and, and I can fill it out more if you'd like, I think that this question of legitimacy is related to two other issues that are in the film. One is violence and the other is money, capitalism. Because let's not forget... It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. It's not personal, it's business. And so I think these two, violence and, and finance, capitalism, capital, are related to this question of legitimacy. Yeah, and I think that we see that from the very beginning in this trope that returns many, many, many times in the film of, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Now look, Taro, I want you to eat. I want you to rest well in a month from now, this Hollywood big shot is going to give you what you want. Too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. 
you know, how did this happen? How did this agreement happen? And the answer is not, well, we just legitimately signed a contract <laughs> or, you know, like, or, you know, we, we had a fair exchange of goods and, you know, money. Uh, I put a gun to his head and I was like, either your signature is going to be on that contract or your brains are. So I do think that when you say a running theme of the trilogy is legitimacy, I completely agree with you. If we could put legitimacy in scare quotes, it's never really about legitimacy. It's about power. But the appearance of legitimacy is important, even if that appearance can only happen through violence or bribes. So this example you give of Johnny Fontaine's getting out of his contract and so on. What's interesting is the one who's holding the gun is Luca Brazzi. Who wishes that your first child is a masculine child. <laughs> <laughs> But what's interesting is that Vito Corleone, who's Don during this scene, he's embarrassed that Luca is at his house on the day of his daughter's wedding. And he says, do I have to see him and so on. And so I think you're right that, you know, that kind of shows because he then calls him my oldest friend. Mm -hmm. And that shows that this issue of legitimacy is really all about appearances. Mm -hmm. So I will go back to Lee's great point about fundamentally what we're talking about is power. And I think this question of legitimacy really is the attempt of the Corleones and, and I guess the other mob families that we see in the movies, their desire for power is the ability to project the legitimacy of anything that they do, to no longer be accountable. We see that the legitimate authority behave in the same way as criminal authority, except the fact that there is a face that the legitimate or the formal authority has. Power begets legitimacy. So that's the first point. And the second point that fascinates me around the question of, of reasonableness and compromise and negotiation, I'll make you an offer, that's fundamentally, in all cases, an appeal to two primal human instincts, a greed, can we offer you enough money to make you change your mind or to go along with what we want? Or fear. Can I so threaten and scare the shit out of you that you will decide to go along with what I want you to do? Your brains of your signature on this contract. So I think I agree with where you were going, Charles, and also with what Lee was saying, except for one thing. I think Michael's promise to his father and to Kay, and it's reiterated in Godfather 2, namely that the family will be legitimate. And then his claim in Godfather 3 that the legitimate world is more corrupt than the criminal world. I think those are honest in Michael's mind. I think Michael does think that the legitimate world looks different than his world. And that's why he wants to move the family to legitimacy. And I think one problem he has is that coming from his world, the only way he can get there is through violence. And he always thinks this is the last act of violence. This is the act of violence that will set up legitimate power. And that never works out until he finally realizes that what he thinks is the legitimate world is also violent. Yeah, I completely agree with you, except maybe that I'm not sure that Michael is so sincere or honest in that claim. I do think that there is something both in Vito and in Michael when they say we want to make the family legitimate. There's a little bit of Thrasymachus in them that justice is whatever benefits the powerful. 
the criminal life is just whatever the lawmakers say is criminal. And so, and I think that's why Vito wants Michael first to be a senator or a governor or a judge. That's how he sees how we become legitimate. I think Michael later, and this is the story of America, says, no, actually, that's not how we become legitimate. We become legitimate by having non-criminal businesses that are successful. And then later in the third, as you say correctly, I think, I think what he sees is that neither politics nor business is legitimate in any sense other than this non-moral sense. So uh, this is just a small point. I agree not 100%, but like 99%. Because <laughs> there is a moment right in the opening scene of Godfather 1 where the undertaker comes to his house and asks him to do murder. And Vito says, what do you want? And he says, I seek justice. And Vito says, that's not justice. Right. So there is a notion, he does have an independent notion of justice that is not just the arbitrary exercise of power. Yeah, but it's this like Antigone notion of justice, right? Not the law, not what the right. law says, but there's a yeah, yeah. family justice, there's Fair an enough. unwritten law justice. Right, legally right, but morally wrong, or vice versa. <laughs> no, and I think there's also the sense, and this is what Vito says at the end of Godfather 1, where he and Michael are going over the final plans, and he says, you know, I didn't want to be pulled on the strings by these big shots. So there's also the question of power, not simply for its own pursuit, but certainly how do I create an autonomy and how do I create a world and a life that I want to live where I have agency and self-determination? Yeah, I think that the notion of not being played by somebody else, I think this is one of the things that, and I can't believe we've gone this long talking about it without mentioning for those who for some reason haven't seen The Godfather 2, it alternates between the present day of the film and the past of Vito Corleone, his origin in Sicily, his early days emigrating, and his early days in New York, to his rise as Don Corleone. And I think one of the roles that those historical scenes show is how much Vito acts precisely because he doesn't want someone else pulling his strings. His sense of justice is primarily about that. So he has the sense of what freedom means. And I think what he doesn't understand and what Michael doesn't understand is that that notion of freedom always means violence. Because it's a predatory world. You know, his family were murdered by the local mafia don in Sicily. The deli where he worked when he is a young man in New York, that's being preyed upon by Fanucci, or whether it be even the senator when he's in Tahoe, the senator is still a predator trying to extort and exploit. So there can be no freedom, there can be no empowerment without some type of violent response. I do want to say this that I think distinguishes Vito Corleone from everyone that follows is that for everyone that follows, exactly as Rick said earlier, this question of legitimacy is answered with either violence or money. I mm. think that for Vito, there's one other option, and that's a favor. And that's building of trust, of literally old world honor, the sense of honor that keeps you from having to threaten or bribe. And I really do appreciate that about his story. And I think that that's why he's so lovable in the film and also to literally everyone else that follows. I think, you know, he makes people an offer they can't refuse, right? 
Sometimes that involves violence or bribes, but sometimes it's just to be in his good favor by doing him a favor is the offer that you can't refuse. And that's actually how he builds his power. And he keeps saying, especially in two, and he points to his head every time he does this, I'll always remember this. I'll never forget this. And ask your friends, Vito Corleone knows how to repay a favor. So I think you're right. Yeah, it occurs to me now, and I want to ask both of you, it seems like the one important thing that's lost in the transition from the old world to the new world is this notion of honor, that it only becomes about violence and money in the new world. And legitimacy, either as political legitimacy or economic legitimacy. And we lose this other sense. I mean, this unwritten law of legitimacy. No, I mean, you're completely right. I mean, if we look at the early scenes in what I would imagine to be just off the top of my head, Mulberry Street. You know, if it's a Mulberry Street, then basically Mm -hmm. he, he becomes a patron. He becomes in many ways a protector of the community. The people who are marginalized don't have access to the tools of power in order to get their needs met, whether it be the widow who's going to be evicted because of the dog or or any of that. So I think you nailed it because you go from a a patronage system, which is based on honor, which is based upon a communal sensibility to pure transaction. By the time Michael is in Lake Tahoe in 1960, 1961, everything that entire world is pure transaction. How can we either make money together or how can I extort money, fear, submission or subservience from you? And this really is the story of America then is that when everyone becomes thieves and there's no honor among those thieves, then legitimacy is a literally laughable thing to pursue. I think Lee is exactly right, that there is this notion of honor that is really functioning in Vito's head. And I think Michael tries to keep the veneer of it all the while betraying the actual content of a concept like honor. And Vito does it more in a gift-giving way, as Lee put it, you know, doing favors for other people. Those favors are often quite violent. Actually, not not often. They're not violent often, right? Well, I mean, maybe once or twice we see him engage in violence. He picks his moments of violence so that yes. they'll keep repaying. Yes, so correct. His, his <laughs> yeah. killing Fanucci is what allows him to do a favor to the widow. Mm-hmm. And he even calls the landlord finally capitulating to him. He calls that a favor. Yeah. And he yeah. says, I'll remember this. And that all gets spun out of that one single act of violence. I think also, by the way, his killing, now I forget the character's name, the the Don in Sicily who murdered his father, that has nothing to do with business. That's all about avenging his father's death and his brother's death. It's an honor killing. It's an honor killing. Exactly. To be honest, this idea of this old world honor that Don Vito exemplifies It also seems to me that he's able to function in this way because he's coming old world values. He's a patron, right? He's taking care of people, but he's getting from them what they can give, which is their ability to do favors. If everybody had money, then maybe it would be a bit more transactional when they come to him in need. But, you know, the widow doesn't have any money, so maybe she'll make a dinner for his family at some point in the future. I do think that there's a significant difference between the transactional nature of 
favors in the way that Don Vito Corleone distributes them yeah. and economic transactions. I mean, there is a kind of potlatchy n- nature to the way that he does favors. And it's very clear in all of his interactions, but especially in the character establishing scene, the very first scene in the study in the very first Godfather, that he is not giving out favors with the presumption that those favors will be returned. I mean, there's the sense that I may never call on you, but there may be a day when I call on you and I'm going to need a favor. I'm not going to come ask for a favor just because you owe me one. I'm only going to come ask you for a favor if I need it. And what's interestingly about that scene, which I think establishes a lot of the accoutrement of this favor potlatch context is that Vito Corleone initially refuses. And the reason he refuses is because the undertaker has not so much as invited him over for a cup of coffee. In other words, he has not befriended Don Corleone. He has not, he says, treated me with respect. And because of that, I'm not going to give you a favor. And it's only when he starts treating him with respect that he says, okay. Yeah, I mean, the undertaker has come to Don Corleone with an entirely transactional sense of favors. Yes, He's like, can you do me this favor? I know you have to do it on this day. And when Don Corleone is like, I'm not really sure. We're not really friends. We hardly, you know, you've never invited me over for coffee. Then the undertaker says, will you be my friend? Right. Don. Yes. And the fact that Bonacera... His first line is, right, I believe in America. He's coming to Don Coleone with a very American sensibility versus the old world sensibility, the communal sensibility that Don Corleone still maintains at that point. He's also coming to the Don, importantly, <laughs> to tell a story about violence against women. Yeah. Right. yeah I'm yeah. sorry, I'm not laughing at that. I'm just, again, sort of saying this is such an underlying theme of the whole series. Right. The very first favor that's asked has to do with violence against a woman. Yeah. Well, and yeah. the, the the very last death in the entire trilogy that we see is the death mm-hmm. of Michael's daughter. Yeah. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> All right, you guys, Rami is getting a little scared of us. He seems to think that maybe we may be a little too intimate with the (laughs) inner workings of the mafia. So before we head out for this episode, you're both cozied up in the hot seat. I see you. I want to give you both a chance to make any final points. What did we miss? What did we leave out? Charles, I'll go to you first. You know, once again, thanks for this opportunity, Lee. I know we've made several (laughs) attempts at making you an offer you couldn't refuse in terms of talking about The Godfather. Yeah, so listeners, the the backstory of this was that I said, I do want to do an episode on The Godfather, but I need to rewatch them. Forgetting, of course, that that was going to take me nine and a half hours to rewatch them. And so, you know, I've been putting this off and putting this off and putting this off. So I appreciate both of your kindness. I I didn't ever forget the favor. (laughs) But I wanted to say I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I feel like Rick and I could talk about this for at least another two or three hours. But I want to say Lee's point about the deeply problematic gender representation and narratives within this movie forces me to really begin to rethink how I think about these iconic films that I so enjoy. But it also, I think, brings up an interesting question of how do we engage with artistic products that may have elements that we enjoy, but have deeply problematic elements at all? How do we navigate thinking about them, talking about them, but recognizing that they may have some problematic value 
in terms of cultural analysis and understanding. That's so interesting, Charles, because a number of our conversations in the past, going back to the music episode and, and a couple of other ones, we've talked about how art often has a way of getting into you before your thought can get around it and think it through and so on. And so that art can work in ways that we enjoy it before we even know what it is. And that's a kind of danger. And, and I think that's really interesting. I also have been thinking, Lee made a point early on that we didn't pick up again. And that is the function of history and particularly the history of Sicily, I think is a really interesting topic in this trilogy and the way that it is often used as a device of legitimation. Like, yeah, I know we're violent, but it's okay because we come from this place and it's always been this way. And I think there is one moment that Kay tries to put an end to that by saying this all must end. And she wants to engage in this world historical gesture. But the history that Lee was pointing to and the way it is used as a legitimation strategy, I think, is a really important part of this film. Yeah, this has been a great conversation, you guys. I, I do want to say for the record that I was not trying to point my finger at either of you for your love of The Godfather. I also love The Godfather movies. And it's you know given me pause to rethink why it is that I love these movies so much and maybe tame that enthusiasm down a little bit. Nevertheless, it is the case that this trilogy is so deeply embedded in the American psyche. These quotes, these scenes, these references, it spawned a whole another 50 years of mobster movies and mafia movies and a real imaginary life for television and film that really didn't exist before then. I also think it's important to note that just in the terms of the history of cinema, it was a part of a really important moment in the 70s where we got protagonists that were not likable. I often call this the Humbert Humbert effect, right? This is what, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Nabokov does in Lolita is he gives us a protagonist that we like despite ourselves. Yeah. And Michael Corleone is definitely one of those. But this has been great. I am looking forward to talking to you guys next time, which everyone should know will be our last episode of season three. Um, we're going to take a short break in between season three and season four, but next week will be our last episode of season three. So in the meantime, Rick, Charles, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. It's not personal study, it's business. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> Bye, guys.